Osiris. Ultimately, alpha men are attracted to alpha women. I definitely have existed in a man's world for a very long time, and I was aware of it, and there were things that irked me, but I, I just walked through it. Hi, this is Maggie Rose. You're listening to Salute the Songbird on Osiris Media. Salute the Songbird is a platform for women in music to share their stories and let their voices be heard. And everyone has a seat at the table. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode six of season two of Salute the Songbird. I'm your host, Maggie Rose, and I am particularly happy this week because finally my album Have a Seat drops on August 20th, this Friday. And for any of you who've been following along, you know that I have been awaiting this day for a very long time. So it's so wonderful to be able to finally give you this music. And thank you to everyone who's come out and seen us on the Have a Seat tour. We have been having the time of our lives getting to perform for you all live and just get back out and enjoy the joy of live music. But today, we're talking to a very special artist, Shannon McNally, who's lived many lives and seemingly effortlessly rooted down in so many different musical communities. Even though she was raised on Long Island, New York, she became a part of the scene in Los Angeles when she got her first major record deal with Capitol Records. But when she outgrew the LA scene, she headed to New Orleans where she lived for five years and collaborated with the legendary Dr. John before leaving after Hurricane Katrina drove her and so many others out. Then she called Holly Springs, Mississippi home, where she made some great music before moving more recently to my neighborhood of East Nashville. She's worked with musicians like Jim Keltner and James Gadsden, legends, just to name a few. She's toured with icons like John Mellencamp on her first tour and Stevie Nicks. And speaking of icons, most recently for her ninth studio album, yes, nine albums, she pays tribute to one of her favorite musicians, Waylon Jennings on the Waylon Sessions, which was released earlier this year. She says she wanted to give Waylon a chance when it comes to a younger generation of music listeners who might not be exposed regularly to the qualities found in his music. She recreates some of his best works on this record with pure genius and authenticity, making these songs her own while honoring his legacy. Everyone she worked with on this record has a spiritual connection to the music. Jesse Coulter, Waylon's widow, sings background vocals. Lucas Nelson, son of Willie Nelson, is on the record, Rodney Crowell, Buddy Miller, all of them collaborated with her on the Wayland Sessions. I see Shannon as an exposed nerve and a storyteller and a conduit for emotion and connection. You can hear it in the different accents she's picked up from the time she's spent in different regions. And you can see it and hear it in the way she channels Wayland so masterfully. She demonstrates what an empath she really is. So without further ado, let's talk to the irresistible Shannon McNally. was it like growing up on Long Island and the music scene? Well, I don't know what the music scene was like, but there was a lot of music, you know? I mean, I kind of grew up on classic rock radio. I don't even know that we called it classic rock at the time, but I lived right between Jones Beach Amphitheater and NASA Coliseum. So I saw a lot of music growing up at both those places. So my orientation has always kind of been stadium rock, you know, or big shows, you know. I saw Pink Floyd and Jimmy Page. I never saw Led Zeppelin together, but I saw them individually. The Grateful Dead, Bruce Springsteen. I saw Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers a number of times in high school. Aerosmith. Jones Beach is such an incredible venue, too. Forget everything I saw at Jones Beach. I mean, yeah, I saw... Neil Young, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, Santana, the Allman Brothers. This is sort of on and on and on and on. And then one day I finally got to play open for Stevie Nicks there. So it was kind of like. That's pretty rad. It was pretty rad. I opened for Hart and Joan Jett there. And we had a storm about as bad as the one brewing behind me Uh up until five minutes right before the show. It was Uh awesome. Yeah, I've been rained on many times at Jones Beach Amphitheater sitting in the audience. So Something tells right. me that 
A little rain is not going to scare people away. No, it's a rite of passage. Yeah. I was at a Santana show one time and he literally made it rain. He said, we're going to make it rain. That's awesome. It it was pretty happening. Yeah. It was pretty happening. happening. My parents weren't musicians. They were working people, but they had a great music collection and they liked music and they liked art and they were open to all of it. You know, they were sort of They weren't extreme hippies, but they definitely had come out of the 60s. My mom had all the early Bonnie Raitt records, so I would say give it up, Bonnie Raitt. I knew every word on that record. But my uncle gave me a guitar when I was 12 and he gave me a J.J. Kale record and he taught me how to play a bar chord all in the same moment. And it was a big relief for me because I wasn't real outgoing. I don't know if I was shy. I was just quiet and studious and I wasn't sort of into showy pop stuff. And the stuff that was being geared towards me at the time was sort of all that mall rock, you know. Tiffany and Debbie Gibson and very indicative of the time. Yes. Very indicative. Especially for female musicians that were emerging. Yeah. You know, and even Madonna and stuff like that, that was all being geared to me. It just didn't talk to me. So I remember hearing JJ Kale for the first time, you know, there was no first time I heard Pink Floyd, but the first time I really kind of tuned in and went, Oh, what's this called? This is called Pink Floyd. Hello. I remember those being sort of defining moments where I felt relief because I got sucked in on a hypnotic level. And it was exciting to me. That's awesome. So then you started to play open mic nights when you were in college. Was that kind of with the Bonnie Wright tunes? Well, I was in music programs all through school. I played the violin, the recorder. I was in the orchestra. I was in the choir. I was in a select choir. And I learned how to sing. But yeah, I went to college and I'd been going to concerts a lot. And it was always sort of in the back of my mind, you know, but I didn't know anybody who was a working musician. I didn't know how, I had no idea how you did any of it. I remember going to see shows at NASA Coliseum thinking, who are those people in the front row and how did they get there? It was completely foreign to me. But when I got to college, I went to school in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. They had a really nice little live scene. It was sort of a lot of deadheads, a lot of jazz and bluegrass bands with drummers. And we had open mic nights. They had a blues club on campus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I went to an open mic at the Blue Star, a big old-fashioned bar with a long bar, a big jukebox. And I did a Bonnie Raitt song, Love Has No Pride. They said, oh, you got to be in the band. And I said, oh, all right, I'll be in the band. And did you feel like that experience kind of taught you about all the machinations of how these shows are put together? Or was it just no. baptism by fire? No, <laughs> you didn't. <laughs> didn't teach me much. I mean, it taught me how to just be on stage, you know, and sort of be in a bar. I'd never been in a band setting before, and and I really liked it. You know, it made me want to play more guitar. I wasn't very good, and it made me want to write songs. And I'd made a little recording the year I graduated, and I met Los Lobos that summer. And I saw them. They came to Lancaster, and they did a show at the Chameleon. It was the first year of the Further Fest, which was after Jerry Garcia died. The Grateful Dead sort of splintered into all the various bands that they become and they did this festival called the further fest it was the first year of the further festival it was the first year after jerry died lobos was on the bill and they came through this town where i was still sort of hanging out post graduating i i didn't know how to go where the next step was i got to be friends with them and the next day i was like i think i'm going to la <laughs> those guys live in la <laughs> i heard you tell this story and i was listening to 
the Troubadour podcast and that you had just offered to be their runner. Like you kind of snuck into the chameleon. You cleaned the coffee pot, which I absolutely love. (laughs) And they asked you this. They're like, how did you skip over that story? And I, too, just feel like that. Like that takes a rare personality to just be like, I'm going to get in there. And I was so I mean, I didn't work at the club. And my friend told me that they were loading in at noon. So I was really excited. So I was like, I just went down to the club. And I was standing there on the doorstep when they pulled up and I just said, yeah, hey, uh, I work for the club and uh, I'm going to be your runner today. So whatever you need, just let me know. And they were like, oh, yeah, OK, sure. So, you know, they came and somebody opened the club and the rider was there. So I, I cleaned the green room. I cleaned out the coffee pot. I made coffee. I laid out their rider. <laughs> now, it was like them and the sound guys and the sound guys. They're not cleaning a coffee pot. Right. Yeah. So I. Who knows when that coffee pot was cleaned? Oh, it was disgusting. So I I laid it all out and then I just kind of stood around and looked useful, you know. And once they started playing guitars, it was just like I was hypnotized. I couldn't have left if I wanted to, you know. So they did the whole show. And and then that night after the show, I I said, uh, I worked at the coffee shop. I said, well, how about we make you breakfast in the morning? We made them breakfast for 15 people. And I was just... I sort of have this thing like when, when something excites me, I, I just light up and I just let it take over. So I just followed them out and we went out to Pittsburgh and I told my boyfriend at the time, he was a big deadhead, young guy. I mean, we were what, 22 years old, you know, but I said to him, don't tell me you want to leave before the last note of the last song has been played. Okay. Cause I'm not leaving. I don't care what you do. I'm not leaving until this is over. So don't go out there and get drunk and sunburned and stupid and come back here and tell me, I'm going to go home because I ain't going. (laughs) We're seeing this through. Oh, yeah. I'm staying. In fact, I might just get in the van and just keep going. But I just remember getting there and David Hidalgo introduced me to everybody there. He introduced me to Yorma and all the guys in the Graceful Dead. and, And he gave me his pass. He's a big man. You know, he's like, Anybody messes with you, you tell them to come talk to me. No so, way. <laughs> so aren't you glad that you went and took it upon yourself to make them breakfast and help them out? Oh, God. Oh, it, it was meant to be. You know, sometimes in your life, things are so clearly meant to be that it's not your fault. You're just, you know, you've been struck by lightning. Were they instrumental in getting you the group that you're going to work with in L.A.? No. Right around the same time. I went to see the Cowboy Junkies. And at the end of the show, Margo said, you know, if anybody would like to stick around and I'll sign autographs and, you know, we've got CDs and stuff. And my roommate said to me, do you have your tape? Because they were cassettes. You have your cassette on you? I said, no. She goes, let's go get it. I was like, okay. So we literally ran back to her apartment, which was like 15 minutes away. We got the tape. We went back. And I was the last person online and I gave the cassette to Margo and said, I love what you do. This is what I do. And I got a call a couple of days later from her manager who said, you know, he was English and I thought it was a joke. I said, my name's Beta and I manage Cowboy Junkies. And what are you doing? I heard your tape. And he said, I think you're fantastic and we should get you a publishing deal and you should come to L.A. So, I mean, I had just met Los Lobos, the whole thing. And I was like, oh, yeah, sure. I was like, that makes sense. That's where Los Lobos lives. <laughs> Let's go to LA. Of course. And what's the scene like there? How did all of those things happen for you? Because they certainly did. He was actually pretty connected. He also managed Natalie Merchant in the 10,000 Maniacs. And he took me to this A&R guy at Capitol. So at the time, it's not that different now. There's sort of a songwriter carousel of songwriters and they would sort of hook you up, you know, with all these songwriters. And, you know, Lilith Fair was just happening and girls were hot. All of a sudden, you know, the rules were changing dramatically because until Lilith Fair, you couldn't play two women back to back on the radio. I mean, it was a rule. You know, or have and, uh, them the same day on a festival or. Right. You almost couldn't have two women on the label at the same time. You sure couldn't have two stars. So Peter introduced me to this other English guy who's the A&R guy at Capitol. And 
he liked my voice and I just went, we went out and so I started doing the songwriter carousel and writing with different people. And I met Greg Lease real fast, right? Real early on, I met Greg Lease. Greg is a great pedal great steel player, player, great guitar player. And Greg and I got to be really good friends. And so I went out I went out to see a lot of music and, and I got to know Greg and I got to know a lot of the session players in town. And I just started writing and, you know, sort of hanging around and doing stuff. It was kind of a slow go, made the first record, but it took a long time to get that first record out just because the big gargantuan companies, Napster had just come in and and they were all just, the rats were jumping off the sinking ship and they were still making money hand over fist, you know, and I was sort of there going down on the, you know, I'd signed on to the Titanic. (laughs) But, you know, it worked for me for a while. You know, I made that first record. We put it out. And my very first tour was opening for John Mellencamp. So it's a great record. Thank you. Do you feel Jukebox Sparrows is the first record? Mm -hmm. And do you ever feel sometimes because you've been so prolific that those songs should be revisited or do you incorporate them in your set today or is it just almost too distant from where you've evolved to i always deal with that yeah there's a few of them from that record that i still do i re-recorded now that i know a couple years ago with charlie sexton i did a an acoustic version of it now that i know i know i love now see what i see see it'll be that I got but I got yeah hell it all midweek very cool Charlie's so good well now that I know it had such a big moment commercially too with mm-hmm. Sweet Home Alabama and I yeah. think sometimes I it's painful for me to revisit some songs when I associate them with a certain period of time and for my sure. own journey but I feel after some time and reflection, you're like, that's a part of my story. Yeah. We were just talking about your first album with Capital and how it took a few years to come out. You probably saw a lot of changes within the industry and within your label in particular, just with everything that was going on with the new streaming Napster disaster that crushed our industry that we're still, we've never recovered from, honestly. We might not, we'll never recover from it. It will always, it will never be the same. Well, and I think that also carries over just into the accessibility that's expected of every artist too, just having this at our fingertips Constantly, whenever. Yeah, the upside of it is that for a long time, the gatekeepers, they all lost their gigs. A lot of things had the freedom to grow and the freedom to come out and people had the option to find stuff. Whereas before, if you were on a big label and everything was going through gatekeepers. I think the art of being an A&R is really lost on the label side. I think the publishing world has stronger showing in A&Rs. And I've always dealt with this in Nashville. And I feel like you probably did too, because you are someone who transcends genre and always has been just all over the map, literally, and then all over the map musically. I've gotten, and this has been expected to be a sufficient response. Like, we just don't know what to do with you. Like, you're great, but we don't know what to do with you. Remember, that's what they said to Aretha Franklin for a long time. They did not know what to do with her. So by the time she got to Muscle Shoals, you know, she was kind of like... And she was already a goddess, you know, the greatest singer of all times. And she had so much sort of political will behind her, too. But they didn't know what to do with her. And when they're telling you they don't know what to do with you, that means you rock. (laughs) Well, good, because I've heard it enough, and I'm sure you have. I just made a record at Muscle Shoals. It's coming out in August, finally. But 
for as much as I know about that, I didn't know that that was the moment in her career that kind of was the defining turn of events. So with Jukebox Sparrows, which was eventually, when it came out, a really well-received album, you had the John Mellencamp tour. Like You were kind of thrust into this scene that was really fast-moving, all the late-night appearances. And what was that like? Were you prepared for that level of touring and just visibility? Yeah, I didn't mind any of it. It was all fun. I mean, touring was great, you know, and I liked the music and I had a good little band. As far as Capitol was concerned at the time, I was too country. Mm. And even when you listen to that record, I don't hear country. It's Americana. When they asked me my first, the first conversation, who do you want to produce your record? My first response was, we could have Ry Cooter. And they kind of looked at me like, you want who? I said, well, Ry Cooter. <laughs> and they were like, oh, Ry Cooter? <laughs> why? I was like, why? I get that a lot. Why? But yeah, it was Americana. You know, genres are really, genre is really silly. It's a really silly concept. It's a ridiculous it's, concept. I feel like a necessity for marketing. I certainly don't sit down to write. And I imagine you don't. I think some people can write to a genre, but I don't think great art is written to a, you know, I really don't know. I mean, Miles Davis wrote to, to his genre, I guess, but he was always pushing the envelope of it. So mm. most great artists don't really know what to call you. you know, you're somewhere between this and that. That's okay. Who were some of the people that kind of made you feel like, all right, I'm in control and I know what I'm doing and I found my sound. Greg Lease was really, mm -hmm. he was really helpful in that regard. Jim Keltner. Jim Keltner. That's so badass. <laughs> I still get excited when I, I think about the first time I met him. I still, you know, I have such a spiritual existence with musicians and records and songs and stuff. I still get equally excited about players. The most fun thing to me about making a record is who you can get in the room, you know, who you right. can hang out with and who you can share energy and swap stories with because it all rubs off on you and you can't wash it off. Well, I think you did that so much with the Waylon Sessions too. It's about getting a bunch of musicians in the room and you've consistently done that throughout your career is have that live tracking experience where there's that urgency and the community of like, we all live and die by the note that the next one is playing together. Yes. I mean, there's so many people that shaped and informed what I do and how I do it. I mean, Charlie Sexton is just, I mean, he has wings. Ben Montench, Dr. John, Bobby Charles, Tony Hall in New Orleans, Raymond Weber in New Orleans. I mean, here, this Whalen record, you know, Rodney Crowell, this Whalen record, um, the band, Kenny Vaughn, you know, I, I called Kenny because it's like, it's like cooking, you know, it's, it's the same as you're, you're in a kitchen and you're going to add the right, first of all, you need the right base ingredients and then you need the right spice. And then you have the quality of your ingredients and how those ingredients all play off and inform one another. You know, when you have a great band in a room together, people who are comfortable with each other and people who communicate well. They communicate silently and they communicate verbally. I asked Kenny Vaughn, initially when I had the idea to do this record, my first thought was the guitars have to be great. And you can play. You, you know how to identify that tone. Yeah, you know, I don't normally play guitar on my own records. Why is that? <laughs> because the world is my oyster and there's really good guitar players <laughs> out there. That's, That's a perfectly acceptable answer. I mean, I mean, but you are a great guitar player. I mean, thank you. you have well, such I, wonderful blues <laughs> sensibilities, and you can hang with anybody. But I guess when, like you said, it's a recipe. When you're putting your album together, you can pick any ingredient off the shelf. Yeah, I think I'll end up playing more in the studio eventually. But like in the, you know, when I did this record, when I had Fred Newell and Kenny Vaughn, 
I really wanted to hear them, you know, and mm-hmm. as far as I'm concerned, I'm channeling through them. And I had a lot to think about just singing. I sing, you know, without thinking about it, but on this record, you know, you only have so much energy that comes out of your body at any given time. And so to get the vocals, they were big shoes to fill, you know, and I kind of, I didn't want to let walk and chew gum at the same time. I'm jumping all over the history of Shannon McNally, but you left LA and you went to New Orleans. You did some amazing projects there. I mean, your project with Dr. John, Small Town Talk, I have on vinyl. It's incredible, but also the North American ghost music and the Wayland Sessions, to me, listening to that, you look back at your discography and this isn't the first time that you've taken an artist's material and just completely reimagined it. And I feel like that's what you and Dr. John did with Bobby Charles tunes, right? And it's just like, there's this really cool new voice and interpretation that you lend to that music on Black Irish. I love that record. Then you also have incredible songwriting that you showcase. Banshee Moan, I think I've told you this before, is just an achingly beautiful song. So thank you. After you know all these incredible accomplishments, you just decide and Blue Rose, your label, gives you free reign to decide to do this. And I saw this quote that you had said, and I'm paraphrasing, where you're like, I've always walked through a man's world and I have autonomy to do this in a way that I feel really needs a woman's voice on these songs because they're just so masculine in how they've been packaged and you're shining a light on it that maybe is going to call back some attention to this great music because you're framing it in the Shannon McNally way. Right. Well, I mean, I think ultimately you are attracted to music because of the frequency of it. Ultimately, real sort of alpha men are attracted to alpha women. and I definitely have existed in a man's world for a very long time. And I was aware of it. And there were things that irked me. But I, I just walked through it, you know. And it's funny. Things have changed so dramatically in the last three years, four years. I never brought attention. I mean, it was obvious. I okay, I'm a woman, and I'm here in the room, and I'm the only one. But I never brought attention to it. I never it was never something that I stressed the fact that that was what was going on. And I just tried to. I just loved rock and roll, and it's all I ever wanted to do was be in Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. And the Whalen stuff, it just I identify with it so much. I just have this thing where I kind of light up when something grabs me I just light up and it becomes I go on autopilot once the idea hit me you know I've been working with Terry Allen for the last few years and Terry is also from Lubbock basically Terry is one of the best kept secrets in the world he's a songwriter but he's really he's an artist he's a prolific songwriter prolific visual artist, you know, sculptor, painter, and he does huge exhibits all over the world. But he writes records that go with his art. And he's had a couple of real serious cult classics. You know, he's great, like Tom Waits is great, or like Guy Clark, right. and consistent and thorough, and he's got 20, 25 records, and most of them are the serious cult classics. And I met him through... Charlie Sexton and Buck Allen, his son. And I have been blessed, you know, I have lived in a man's world, but I have been blessed to deal with artists. Most, 99% of them are men, but they've supported what I've done. They've been mentors and they've been encouraging and Mm -hmm. they're real kind of transcendental characters. You know, I mean, Dr. John, he reacted to a soul. And he didn't care what color you were, what shape, size, genre. He didn't care. If it talked to him, 
he went with it. Same with Jim Dickinson, same with mm. probably, you know, same with you, the same with me. If you like it, it sounds good. It feels good. But working with Terry Allen, I realized something about, you know, being in the vicinity of another great artist is it, it really just opens you up and it gives you permission. And this idea that we all need a little bit of, we need to be given permission to kind of accept completely who we are. And it takes time. Maybe it happens for some people earlier and you peak younger or whatever. It doesn't matter. But being around great artists gives you permission to kind of let your soul out. And uh, I think that's what happened, you know, with the Whalen thing. And when the idea came to me, I mean, I, I'm as comfortable with those Whalen songs. Willie Nelson, the same thing. I mean, I'm utterly comfortable with that. And I, when I look at Willie Nelson, I don't think, I mean, I know he's a man, but I don't think, man, I <laughs> yeah. just, man, I just think. <laughs> so sing, secretary, I, even I know, further I think, removed. I think singer, you know, I think mm-hmm. guitar player, I think, you know, medicine person, I think freedom, I think love, happiness, humor. But being yourself is revolutionary. Obviously, through the history of the world uh, at various times, it's been harder for women, you know, and. And some of that we do ourselves, and a lot of that is just imposed on us by so many other things. And there's keeping the peace, and and there's being able to tuck your pride in and get done what you got to get done. It's all opening up and changing, and some of it will be good, and some of it won't be good. You know? There's things that we're going to miss about the 20th century. It's really right. gone. I think any disruption, which is essentially what we're doing is going to yield all those results that you're talking about. What was the the technical approach? Because I know you had to track a lot of songs in a pretty short amount of time. What did that what did that look like, the timeline? We tracked the body of the record in four days. <laughs> <laughs> that's what's nice about the 20th century (laughs) right yeah true true. (laughs) hit it and quit it boys (laughs) misery sticks to the tape as jim dickinson would say but when you get great players in a room and and they start playing off one another and your engineer knows what he's doing and, and the room's wired right and you got good sounds once you get your good sounds then it's a matter of learning the song and playing it it's not rocket science Name some of the people you had in the room because they're incredible. Marty Stewart and his crew. I used half of Marty's band. Marty was unbelievable. There, but, uh, I, Kenny Vaughn. Yeah, the fa- mm-hmm. fabulous superb. Kenny Vaughn, Chris Scruggs, Derek Mixon. Derek plays mm-hmm. drums with Chris Stapleton. Fred Newell. Fred, Fred actually played pedal steel and harmonica and lead guitar with Waylon. So wow. he's like, yeah, so he's the, you know, he's the stone in the stone soup. And Bucca Allen on piano. He came in from Texas, from Austin. And that was it. It was just the six of us, I guess, in the room. I mean, I did the Dr. John record the same way. We did three, four songs a day with Mac. And basically, we'd pull the song up. Everybody would listen to it and chart it out, pick a key. and. You know, I'd sing it in a couple different keys, find the right key and uh, run it once or twice. But you really don't want to overrun anything. This is why you deal with great players, because this is how they operate. When it can get stale, too. It gets stale real fast. And when you can catch it lightning in a bottle, that's really what you're going for. And that's how all our favorite records got made, you know. And those are songs that are in y'all's DNA, too. Like, it's something that you have carried with you for a long time. Yeah, the only loose cannon in the room was me. Can I actually? <laughs> <laughs> Uh-oh, it's time to do this. Hmm. Your voice sounds so exceptional on it, though. And I love that you preserved the lyric, like you weren't flipping pronouns around and things like that and verifying with some really important people in his life. Yeah, it meant a lot to me. Waylon was very well loved, you know, and yes. deeply loved. And he's a cornerstone figure. 
between country music and American music. So I wanted it to be authentic. I didn't want to reinvent any wheels. To me, the most important thing is making it feel like a Waylon Jennings record. So you want to get the feel and the frequency right. And to do that, it's a group sport. You know, you're not in there by yourself. It's not even about you. It's about transcending yourself and about transcending. And you can't transcend when you're carrying your pride with you or your ego with you. So you kind of have to check that at the door. It's the same as jumping out of a plane and having a baby. You just got to, we're going for something higher here and I'm going to trust. But I wanted it to feel authentic. I wanted to be respectful to his people. But I wanted to do right by the people who would otherwise never hear him or never get past, say, real young listeners. I wanted to reintroduce him in a way that you know, like say to my daughter, who's 12, you know, mm-hmm. going on 13 and she's really coming at music from, you know, I mean, she listens to K-pop and it's all very dance driven and it's all short attention span and, right. and it's all computer driven and synth driven. And I wanted Waylon to stand a chance. I realized one day my daughter was about eight or nine. We were standing in a store in Nashville. It was like a vintage clothing store. And Louis Armstrong was on playing in the room. And her dad and I have always done this to her, like, who's that singing? You know, like, we wanted to be able to, who is that? And so we coach her, you know. Identify the greats. Identify the greats, yeah. And she listened, so she's listening. And she looks at me and she goes, I don't know, but it's definitely 20th century. (laughs) 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 And the woman behind the counter was like, oh. I was like, hmm. So from that moment forward, I've started to think of things as 20th century, 21st century. Because that's where the rub is for me too, for Black Lives Matter, for music, for classic country, bro country. It's 20th century, 21st century. The assistance of technology too, not requiring us all to get in a room and and being able to maybe fudge some abilities that are coming up short. I mean... There's so many things to attribute that to. Yeah. And the things that purists are so adamant about saving, it's been completely marginalized just by technology, but technology hasn't learned how to do that thing. Right. Artists need to be the ones driving that ship. But what I I love that I heard you did, and I'm not surprised, is that you reached out to the most important people that were in Wayland's life, like Jesse Coulter, his widow, and you have people featured on this record, Rodney Crowell and Lucas Nelson, um, Buddy Miller. I mean, it's so cool that you opened this experience up to them to make sure that this honor that you were giving Wayland was also something that they would be excited about. And of course, they probably were thrilled with the job that you did but that must have been a scary thing to just be like hey very scary the scariest thing after the first day in the studio was the last day in the studio calling jesse colter because you had already cut the songs i cut the record and i thought you know i didn't tell anybody i was going in to do it I, i work with all these texans i didn't tell anybody i was going in to do it i was terrified that if one of them who I love and admire and respect, that's a, that's a, maybe you shouldn't do that. I would have collapsed. So I just didn't tell anybody. I kept it a secret and a, <laughs> a really well-guarded secret. And I went in and I worked with all guys that I really didn't know. So I didn't have any baggage or, you know, I just didn't have any history with them that I was, I don't know. I was, I was just a little bit freer you know, like, well, if this doesn't go well, nobody ever needs to hear it. And I'll just pretend it never happened. You know, I'll just pretend it never happened. But we got in there and it went out well. And so when I got done, I realized I got to call Jesse, And I didn't know her. I got her number from Gary Nicholson. So I called her and I just said, yeah, I did this. And uh, I hope you like it. I hope you approve of it. And I'd love you to sing on it if you liked it. 
So I sent it to her and she was so sweet, so cool. And because I could tell, you know, she's a little like, oh, another Wayland thing, you know. And she called me, you know, after listening to it and she said, yes, sister, you're bold. Really bold. This was really bold. But this is certainly not another Wayland thing. I mean, it's no, she said, but I, I think Wayland would be tickled. He would love it. And I said, well, I'm really glad to hear that. And would you sing on it? <laughs> and she said, yes. And she said, yes. I think if he just heard it without knowing you, he would love it. But then just to know who you are and, and what you're about just makes it that much more enjoyable. And the people that you gathered together to make it. I mean, it's. I wanted everybody to be like, you know, one degree of separation. I wanted it to be as close to what he would do, what he would have done as we could make it. Where can people find you? And keep up with you and all the amazing things you're doing. They can find me wherever they look. (laughs) Find you and me writing a song on your front porch in East Nashville. Yes. Yeah. They can find me wherever they look, you know, Instagram, Google, (laughs) Spotify, you you name it. Facebook. Put her in the Googler, everyone. And And there's my website. There she'll be. Yeah, there's the website. You just put it in the Googler, put it in the computer machine and it'll spit me out. (laughs) hey everybody it's maggie and i hope you're enjoying my conversation with shannon mcnally who i think is the epitome of cool there's a few things that she said during our conversation that electrified me and really resonate with me especially in my way of thinking about how i approach art and creating music and the first one of them being She says the most revolutionary thing we can do is be ourselves, which sounds so simple, but it's so complex and it takes a constant self-awareness and checking in with oneself. And she's motivated by what lights her up. She said that a couple of times. And I sincerely believe that that is what motivates her above all else. Instead of these false validations that I mistakenly deem important sometimes, they're distractions. And she's someone who chases authenticity, whatever form that is. And she's open-minded to letting that thing change. She likens her art to jumping out of a plane or having a baby or what she literally did, making a whole album of Waylon songs without telling anyone in Waylon's personal circle until it was already done. That is the fearlessness that I love to see in artists that are fun to watch. So let's all reach for our higher power and find what lights us up like Shannon. What's been the best insight that you've gained as an artist by being a woman, do you think, in this industry? Or what do you think your female perspective has lent you as an artist that maybe gives you an edge or a benefit to your music and how you create it? You know, I mean, as hard as it kind of has been on a number of levels, being a woman in a man's world, and it is, you get passed over a lot, you get underestimated, you're sexualized you're all these things but it's still rock and roll so when you can actually turn that stuff around and capitalize on it it's powerful you know i mean led zeppelin and the rolling stones they ran on pure tna you know i mean they just mm-hmm. they love curls you know right <laughs> i mean so we're pretty great the- We're pretty great. So fuck it. Use it against them sometimes. Just use it once in a while. Like, fuck you. I'm what you want. It's a power. I don't think it's a disadvantage. And it's a combination. Once you learn how to sort of handle it, it's like you're driving a Corvette. It's a powerful machine. Just got to learn how to drive it. You just got to learn how to drive it. You know, I mean, it really does help to play an instrument really well. I heard Bonnie Raitt say that a long time ago when Nick of Time came out. And I never forgot it. And she said, well, I held on to my guitar as hard as I could, because if you're not holding a guitar, they're going to put a pole in your hand. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. I've never heard that. (laughs) And I never forgot that. I was like, oh, (laughs) I'm going to go practice (laughs) now. Sure. I wouldn't be much good on a pole either, though, I don't think. (laughs) The other thing that has really kind of come to me, particularly in the last few years, and I don't know if it's an age thing or if it's just the Whalen thing, 
but once you do this long enough and you know you've been in the ring a long time and you're still doing it they can't dismiss you anymore you have your babies and you're pregnant for a while and then you're post pregnant and then you get your body back and you're back to work and you're all this stuff and they they run out of things to say oh yeah but she's not a flash in the pan yeah once they can't say that anymore then you're allowed to like kind of turn the give a fuck button off and then it's really nice then you're like oh i don't care (laughs) yeah thank you so much for doing this yeah my pleasure thanks for having me you're doing great work yourself and you sounded amazing the other night and and uh, i really enjoyed the show and it was great, you know, so, you know, you're out there, you're, you're out there working hard, you know, keep it up. Working hard, but I'm enjoying it a lot. It just feels. Oh, well, I go to right bed, you know, if I had a million dollars, I would do exactly what I do. I would just do more of it. Right. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> that makes me happy. I mean, we're lucky, you know, we we're are. blessed to do this you know i get up every morning you know i I set my alarm clock is the the johnny paycheck song take this job and shove it because i (laughs) you do (laughs) because i don't have a good idea well it's because i don't have a job (laughs) i don't have a job you don't have a job you just work your ass off so i don't have a job i I work my ass off i work more than anybody you know we work 24 7 you know i wake up in the middle of the night i gotta control myself not to start sending text messages you know (laughs) oh did we do but i wake up every day thinking you can take that job and shove it because i like what i do i'm going to set my alarm for that tomorrow thank you for that idea it really does help to keep your perspective (laughs) absolutely yeah here's johnny paycheck take this job and shove that's a wrap you can keep up with shannon on her socials at shannon mcnally music that's m-c-n-a-l-l-y music and of course give her brand new album the Whalen sessions a listen i had the privilege of seeing her at the city winery earlier this year so if you get a chance to go see her live don't miss it and to keep up with me my music and my touring calendar you can follow me on twitter instagram and facebook at i am maggie rose and remember this is the week that have a seat comes out i've been waiting so long to release this music to you it comes out on august 20th and come out and see us on the have a seat tour you can see all my tour dates on maggierosemusic.com find me on with the band at i am maggie rose where you can get exclusively the Songbird content along with new music, live stream concerts, and more. You've been listening to Salute the Songbird on Osiris Media. The executive producers are Kirsten Cluthy and Brad Stratton from Osiris Media and Austin Marshall. And the show is edited and mixed by Brad Stratton. Original music by Maggie Rose. Please subscribe to Salute the Songbird on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast content. And if you like the show, please recommend it to a friend or leave us a review so that others can join the conversation. Thanks for listening. And to close out the show, here's Ain't Living Long Like This from Shannon McNally's The Wayland Sessions.
She's a roadhouse queen Make Texas Ruby look like Sandra Dee I wanna love her but I don't know how Down on the bottom of the jailhouse Now I ain't living long like this Can't live it all like this Can I, baby? You know the story about the jailhouse, right? Don't wanna do it but just don't get caught They got them all in the jailhouse, baby Osiris.